Well, dear friends, dear congregation, I would ask you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to those words that I read to you earlier in your hearing there in 1 Corinthians, the chapter 10. In our week-by-week ministry through this epistle, we arrive now in verse 14, where the Apostle Paul says, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. And then he says, behold Israel after the flesh, and so on. Previously, the Apostle Paul has been speaking about Israel after the flesh, hasn't he? He said how all passed through the Red Sea. All were baptized unto Moses. They went through into that Red Sea. They obeyed Moses. When the Red Sea was parted as they were escaping out of Egypt and Pharaoh was behind them, they could either go back, and there was a choice, or they could go forward. And the word was, stand fast and see the salvation of the Lord. It was not a spiritual salvation, but it was an earthly one, we could say. They were saved from slavery. They were brought out of that land of bondage. For many, many years, they were slaves making bricks for the Egyptians. And they were in bondage, and many of them were even in bondage to the idolatry there. Egypt was full of false gods, and each one of those ten plagues we see in each of them, whether it was the god of Heket or Hapes or Beelzebub, any of those gods, the god of the Nile, even Ra, the sun god, remember that penultimate plague, the ninth plague? It was a a sign that God has power over the sun, not Ra, And the Lord was exposing all of that false religion. And the Lord showed that he is the God of heaven and earth. And then finally, by the shedding of that blood of the Lamb, the Israelites, were they not spared their firstborn from the angel of death? What a picture that is. The wages of sin is death. Were blood not shed upon the doorposts and the lintels, of the Israelites, they would have lost their firstborn. They would have perished. Many of them experienced the mighty power of God. They saw the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They saw manna fall from heaven, well over 5,000 ton a day, an omer each for more than 2 million people that came out of Egypt. They saw mighty things. They saw a rock struck, didn't they, by the rod of Moses. And water issued out of that rock and satiated the thirst of all of those people. And that rock, he tells us, was in the wilderness that followed them. That rock was Christ. That manna that fell down, it says they ate that same spiritual food. That food was picturing Christ. 
that rock pictured Christ. The rock wasn't Christ, but it, it spoke of him in type form. It was a spiritual rock. It was God, what God was able to do to provide for his people. And yet, all of these people, although they were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea, although they ate of that spiritual food, drank from that rock, they had those ordinances in type form. We have the ordinance in full form in Christ, don't we? He is, is he not, the manna which has come from heaven? Did he not say so in John 6? Do we not have forgiveness of sins through the shedding of his blood? He fulfilled all of those things. Of course, they were saved in a physical sense. And although the Lord showed them these tremendous signs of his power from heaven, that he was able to have power over all creation, yet they fell. They were proud. You know, even before they got to Pihahirath, just before they crossed the Red Sea, they were already complaining. Complaining against Moses. There was a terrible complaint there. And uh, they even said, would you kill us? Would you kill us? Have you, have you even brought us thus far to kill us? If you read Exodus 14 there. And then they get to the other side. After all, Pharaoh is destroyed. After all of his army is destroyed. And then they sang, didn't they? The song of Moses and the Lamb. They saw these mighty things. And yet, it wasn't long after that, they got to the waters of Marah that were bitter. They were complaining, murmuring. And a tree was thrown in the waters. And it was made sweet. And they were able to drink again. They saw all these wonderful things, and yet they complained. When they grumbled again, God smit them, smote them, didn't he, with the serpents in the wilderness. And then what happened many years after, we thought of it last Lord's Day there in 2 Kings 18. And that very serpent that was put on a pole, that as they looked to it, many years later they began to make that an idol and to offer incense to that serpent on a pole they couldn't speak couldn't do anything they were idolatrous they nonetheless they neglected the commandments of God do you remember when Hezekiah called the people to observe the, the Sabbath the people of Israel laughed they were just about to fall weren't they just about to fall and they laughed and then judgment came. Judgment not yet come to Judah. But Judah kept the Passover. They kept the Sabbath. And the Lord blessed them. But with many of them, even in the wilderness and much later, he says our fathers, he's here speaking where he says our, our fathers, they experienced these many things. And yet the Lord was not well pleased with them. The ordinances that they had. When they drank from that spiritual rock, they didn't consider what God was doing. They were idolatrous. As I said, they even began to give incense to that brazen serpent there upon that pole. 
which they were never meant to do. And so what happened was Hezekiah destroyed it. He got rid of it because it became a snare to the people. Just like Gideon's ephod. There are so many examples. The people are prone and people are prone, let me say, as we... Paul is moving in this direction now to talk about the two ordinances. We've seen them already. We've thought already of baptism, haven't we? How they were all baptized in the sea, a picture. And true baptism, as we know from Romans 6, is a picture of what happens to us. When the Lord saves us, we are made a new creature. The old person has died. And the new person is made alive. Coming out of the water is a picture of, as Paul says, raised in newness of life. Buried with him in baptism, he says in Romans 6, but raised now in newness of life. But even we can make those two ordinances of believer's baptism and the Lord's table, if we are not careful, even those most holy things, if we're not careful, those things, if they are not used properly, we will stumble. We will fall. This is why Paul will have to say in the next chapter, when we sit down at the Lord's table, let a man so examine himself. Many were coming to the table here at Corinth, and the Lord's table was kind of like an appendage to their feasts. It was kind of like a last-minute thought. Some were coming drunk. Some were coming ill-prepared to the Lord's table. And he said, for this sake, many sleep. Many are not alive now. Many are gone. Many are sick, he says, and many sleep. Idolatry is the problem. Men can even use the ordinances, as we will think tonight, in an idolatrous way. The idols of the Old Testament, you know, the idols of the Canaanites, they were just sort of comfort gods. An idol, as he will tell us in this chapter, is nothing. It's nothing really. There's no such thing as an idol. There are evil demons, as we have read. There are evil spirits. But the idols of men really are designed to serve men. This idol, whether it be Baal, he'll give me good crops. An idol is usually invented. They are the inventions of men to serve men. And you see, because there is so much even remaining sin within us, even the proper and the right ordinances of God, if we are not careful, we think, we try to employ to serve our sinful needs. We think just the mere observation of those things in an outward form will be the means of blessing. I met somebody once, a Christian, a professing Christian. And they thought that if you come to the Lord's table, you eat as much bread as you can. They didn't want to see any bread going to waste. That if you, if you just eat more bread, you'll somehow be more blessed. There's no blessing in the bread itself. The blessing is in Christ. So we're very anxious not to see the bread discarded. They believe the more they ate, this is good. 
That's what I'm saying. We have to be very careful as we touch on this subject here tonight. We have to be very careful even in the ordinances that we take to take heed. The Apostle Paul here by the Holy Spirit is being given the Word of God. What we have before us is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. And what he is doing is he is continuing to make the case and the connection that he and every Christian must take heed. He began this, didn't he, at the close of chapter 9, where he says that he runs so as to obtain. But even after he has preached to men, though, he has to take heed to himself and bring every member of his body into subjection to Christ. That he has to watch against carnality in himself. He has to watch against sin. He has to watch against indwelling sin, temptations. In chapter 10, remember we, we read there are at least five sins that the people committed. We won't, don't have time to go over them. And they fell. They had confidence in the flesh, didn't they? Rather, as children, the true spiritual children of God, we are to watch. Paul has been speaking earlier of his Christian liberty that he has in Christ. And even there, with our Christian liberty, we have to be very careful that we don't use our Christian liberty as an occasion to the flesh. And again, let me say, a mere outward observance, as we see here with the Israelites, and though they, they had tremendous signs and blessings, they, they all went into the sea, they all drank from that same spiritual rock, but they were proud. And they took confidence in those things. They, they even took confidence in the fact that they had the law. But they themselves were not spiritual. They all went in the Red Sea. They all drank. But the problem is they were proud. They were covetous. And Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Colossians, that covetousness is idolatry. Even when they got across the other side, God was giving them manna from heaven, and yet they, they imagined that Egypt was a wonderful place that they left. It wasn't. They were whipped they lived under the sun, under the beating sun, making bricks every day. The grass, it's said, is always greener on the other side, isn't it? And he's warned us in this chapter that many sinned against God. Although they experienced these many blessings, as we saw in chapter 10 here, verse 6 to 10, there are five sins, five lusts that are mentioned. These people were not being led of the Spirit. They were not walking by the Spirit. They were walking after the flesh. That's how they were living. And they weren't paying attention to what God was teaching them there in the wilderness. All of those things, the rock, he says that spiritual rock, that was Christ, was meant to teach them a lesson. And even remember, Moses himself, he struck the rock twice. And as a consequence, he was forbade to enter into the promised land because he struck the rock twice because he missed a golden, precious moment that he could glorify Jesus Christ. The rock's been struck once. Christ was struck once for sinners. 
And now we appeal to the Father on behalf of a crucified, risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, who is now sat down at the right hand of the Father. And he says in verse 11, Now all these things happened unto them for in samples. We thought last week, didn't we, they're written for our admonition, for our counsel upon whom the ends of the world are come. It's going to be harder now. We're at the end of time, my friends. Where he says here, upon whom the ends of the world are come. They're written for us. What does he mean? We thought last week, didn't we, that it is so clear in the New Testament that you and I are living in the last days. We are living in the final epoch. There is one great climactic event that is yet to take place. And what is it? It's the appearing of Christ. Suddenly, he shall come upon the clouds of glory. We are told in Hebrews 9.26, But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what Paul says. It's the end of the world. We don't know what the last day is. The Lord Jesus said, no man knoweth the hour. John tells us in 1 John 2, 18, little children, it is the last time. As ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now, there are many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. We are living at the end of the age. There's the Old Testament age. There was the prophetic age. There was the age of the the time when Christ came. But now we're living at the end of the age. One last event. It's the coming of the Son of Man in glory. He tells us, does he not, in Matthew 24, we thought of it last week, remember when he took, we was with the disciples and they went up to the Mount Olivet and he told them about the temple that was going to be destroyed in 70 AD and he said, not one stone shall be left. And then he tells us what it's going to be like at the end of time. He says, many false prophets shall arise, verse 11 of Matthew 24. Many false prophets shall arise. And he says, and because iniquity shall abound, that's in the world. The love of the many, the many even in the professing church, as sin increases and envelops this world as a dark cloud, it will affect even the so-called professing church. And many in the church will be very worldly. And he says, this is why the love of the many shall wax cold. But he says, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And then we read, and the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. And then shall the end come. We're living, my friends, in the last time. And as we live in the last time, we thought the world is going to get worse It's not going to get any easier. And how much more ought we to take heed? Precisely because we're living in such wicked days and iniquity is abounding. It's going to be harder. As I said, I think I said it last week or just recently, and I'm sure many of you can attest to this, that as you've got older, the world has got worse. We cannot even put the television on now. We have to get rid of our televisions. Many of us have. 
You can hardly put the radio on to listen to the news. There's wickedness. You can hardly even go on the train without having to look down to the ground, not see the nakedness of people. It's, it's terrible. And we're told that Satan, there in the book of the Revelation, chapter 12, verse 12, we're told that the dragon is wroth because he knows that he has a little time. There's another reason. And he walks around as a roaring lion seeking to devour whom he will. And we're told in Revelation 12, 17, that he is wroth with them that keep the commandments of God. Those who would be obedient to God and obey his commandments. There's one event to come, my friends. And that is Christ. His appearing. And this is why he says in verse 12, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. And then we thought last week, didn't we, in verse 13 and 14, how there will come temptations to us such as is common to man. And we thought on those three points that yet while there are temptations, and it might be even providence that brings us into trial. The word can also be applied to a trial. God doesn't tempt us, but he does test us as he did Abraham. But there will come temptations from the world and from within, and we will be tested but we've got to use the means of grace. And when we are tempted, God is able because he is faithful. He will not suffer us to be tempted above that which we are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape. And the one way, as I said, to escape is to use the means of grace. We are kept by the power of God through faith. But my friend, you cannot... Grow in the faith if you're not feeding your faith upon the word. The Bible is called the word of faith, Romans 10. And we've got to therefore also earnestly attend to the means of grace of prayer. Even as the Lord Jesus said, he, he prayed for the disciples, but I've prayed for you. That we can pray for one another. We especially must pray for ourselves, but we must especially give ourselves to the reading of the word. And we must also especially earnestly attend to the preaching of the word. So we are kept by God. And therefore he, he moves on to say, therefore, flee. We have a responsibility, don't we? Not just to use the means of grace, but to resist the devil and he will flee from us. To resist all kinds of temptation. Now we must move to our verses he says, wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. And again, as we thought, and this was the problem even when Christ came, many were going through the motions of outward religious ceremony. And we have to be very careful even when we come to the table, even when we look and consider our baptism, what do these things mean? That we don't even use these rightful and proper things that are actually a means of grace as a form of idolatry. We have to really watch against that. I don't know if we've ever thought about it, but it, there's a great need. This is why right doctrine is essential, isn't it? He says, wherefore, dearly, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. 
Let me just say, firstly, idolatry is not merely to be confined to bowing down to an idol, but using an idol to serve your own ends. And you know, even something, as the Lord's table, if we are not careful, can become a snare. You hear what I'm saying? The Lord's table is a blessed means of grace. But if we are not using it carefully, God even through that, as we will see in 1 Corinthians 11, many are sick and fall asleep. And God has had to bring judgment upon them because they merely did not observe it rightly. God, as we will think tonight, is a jealous God. He will say here, do we provoke God to jealousy? And remember what God says, that he is a jealous God. What does that mean? He would have our heart. Do we not read in Scripture that thy maker is thy God and thy husband? And the husband, Christ, would have our heart. Nothing less. He must have our heart. He doesn't want mere outward observance of things, especially his table. What an insult it is to Christ to come and to eat and drink in unworthy manner. This is why we take it seriously, because I care for your souls. That Christ can bring judgment upon people and does if they eat and drink or participate in any of the two ordinances. And we call them ordinances. They are not sacraments. That Latin word sacramento is, is not in the Bible. There's nothing mysterious taking place. They are, as we will think this evening, they are means of grace. There are lots of means of grace that people can actually idolize. Think of the Pharisee. Prayer is a means of grace. You approach God. Something so sacred can be used in an idolatrous fashion. Think of the Pharisee in the temple. The Lord illustrated it. He said, look at him. He's gone to pray. And as he prays, what's the man doing? He's praising himself. He's glorifying himself. He's patting himself on the back and saying, what a good man I am. Thanking himself. Not thanking God. Not like the other man. Saying, God, be merciful to me. He's not repenting. He's not glorifying God. And then see him again. See him there in Matthew 6. When he's fasting, he contorts his face and he ashens his face deliberately to make it look as if he's sick, that he's been without food for weeks, whereas fasting should be done in private because that is what we do to God. Even the giving, proud, self-confident, even those most sacred things Holy things that we do to God, we have to be so careful that we don't make those things outward and idolatrous means of serving self. You can see how he's even using prayer to promote himself before men and even fasting. Well, there's much we can say on this, but we come now to this important matter. And this even applies no less in the case of baptism and the Lord's table. These are the two ordinances that we are given in the New Testament that we are to keep. And so this is why he says, after having said 
In the verse 14, what does he say? Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee idolatry. Now notice what he says in verse 16. I speak as to wise men. He's told us in chapter 2 that we are made wise by the wisdom of God, by the word of God. We're not wise in the world's eyes, but God has made us wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ. Now notice what he says, judge what I say. He's now moving this to the area where even the Lord's table can be used in a wrong way. He moves to the area of the cup of blessing. And this, by this he means the Lord's table. He says, I speak as unto wise men. In other words, believers, men who are made wise by Christ, those who know the meaning of the cup. It's the cup of the Lord's blessing to his people, isn't it? And we must spend time here this evening, I feel, in verse 16 and 17. We won't get very far, but firstly, I want us to think about what really the Lord's table is. He, he will tell us to discern the Lord's body correctly, to think about what we're doing as we come to the table. It's so important, isn't it? We, we know what we're doing. The Bible says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If you merely go through something and just follow others, that's sin. And he would tell us here about the Lord's Supper. Now, several things I want to mention about the Lord's Supper. There are at least six, perhaps seven this evening. Firstly, what we see here from the text, verse 16, it is a memorial. Notice the cup of blessing which we bless. And by the way, the word there, bless, it's not the minister coming and doing something supernatural over the, the bread and the wine. The minister has no power. The, the, the priest or the Catholic priest likes to pretend that he does. The word here, the word bless, is the word eulogia. It's where we get the word eulogy from. And that's where we get the idea of a memorial. When somebody dies, usually a member of the family or somebody close gives the eulogy of the family member. And they speak of the, the wonderful things that that person has perhaps done or not done. It may not be a good eulogy. But the idea, the word eulogy here is it's praise, it's memorial. It's remembering him. Remember what he said, do this in remembrance of me. Now, where there's remembrance, the person's not there. But he's there in the symbols, as we will think. He says, first of all, the cup of blessing. Well, the word, there's two words, this blessing. We bless, we give thanks, and we give praise for this cup. That's the idea. And we remember. You can't give thanks and praise for something which you have no knowledge of. That's the whole idea. We, we, we bless it. No, we to say to somebody, God bless you. God do you good. Well, it is a blessing to the person because of the blessings that flow to us from Christ and we, we eulogize, we remember him. The ordinance, as I say, is a memorial. 
Sometimes we sing, we have it in gospel hymns here, the blessed memorials of thy grief. This is Joseph Hart's hymn. Thy sufferings and thy death we come, dear Savior, to receive, but would receive by faith. The tokens, speaking of the elements, us to relieve. Our spirits, when they droop, we come, dear Savior, to receive, but we would receive in hope. The pledges, they are pledges, thou wouldst be pleased to leave, our mournful minds to move. We come, dear Savior, to receive, but would receive with love. Here, in obedience to thy word, it's also obedience. He said, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, for the believer, for the Christian, it's not an option. It's a command. Do this. Here, in obedience to thy word, we take the bread and wine, the utmost we can do, dear Lord, for all beyond is thine. Increase our faith and hope and love. Lord, give us all that's good. We would thy full salvation prove and share thy flesh and blood. Well, here it's called, isn't it, the cup of blessing. Because we're blessed by it and we glorify God, we eulogize him, we remember him. It's a memorial. Faith discerns, does it not, what Christ has done. What he's done for us. And as it were, it is a, you know, we have sermons in word, don't we? But here is a sermon in pictorial form. This is his body. Not literally, as we would think. This is his blood. But as he was saying, this is my body, there were his living hands breaking the bread. It wasn't literally his body didn't become his body, still had his body. In those hands, two were running his blood. This is what it was going to be. Do this in remembrance of me. Something else, remember what he said. I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine. He didn't say I shall not drink of the blood, but the fruit of the vine. It was a symbol of his blood. When he as I said, he held the cup with his hands. That blood wasn't shed yet. And yet he said, this is my blood. There's nothing mysterious. We reject two doctrines here. Transubstantiation. That's what the Catholics believe. Then the Lutherans, consubstantiation. The one, transubstantiation, they believe that, and they call it the host Say that the bread actually becomes the physical body of Christ. And the bread, sorry, the blood, his, or the fruit of the vine, his, his blood, and the bread, his actual body. And it's terrible when you think of it. Where does it all end up? It's vile. I need not say any more. We reject Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. We also reject consubstantiation. That is, the Lutherans believe that actually present, something mysterious does happen at the table. That Christ is somehow very physically there in the bread, or near the bread. 
Well, of course, God is everywhere because he's spirit. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Now, there is a peculiar sense in that we have a conscious awareness of Christ's presence. But there's nothing mysterious. There's nothing sacramental taking place. That's why we reject those two doctrines. It is memorial. They believe in literally corporee, which is that body truly becoming Christ in that bread. It's terrible. Think of the horror. Think of the insidiousness of that. And as I said, where it all ends up, I need say any more. It is a memorial. If you just turn back, if you turn over, look at 1 Corinthians 11. There in verse 25, I'll read from verse 23. The Apostle Paul says, For I have received of the Lord, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance. Now notice twice he says this. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also we took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do ye this as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Now again, remembrance means that the person's not there. The person is thinking. Faith is being exercised in the presence of God's people there, of what he's done. Something else, it is an act of worship, as I said, praising the Lord for what he has done, and it's a means of blessing to remember him properly. You can't remember him in the same way without coming to the table. That's why he says, as often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. And it should be often. Now, when we practice the Lord's table here, you know this, we don't make it an appendage to the service. Why? Because people are thinking, got to get home, turn the oven off, got to get the food on, got to do this. And everything's in a rush. We have a separate service, do we not? But people are given time to reflect. And even before we come to the table, as you know, I always preach a sermon. We preach Christ and we come having examined what he's done and examined our own hearts and we come and we come, as it were, considering ourselves. And as Paul says, examine yourself. Don't eat and drink in an unworthy manner, he will tell us in the next chapter. Does the man eat and drink damnation, even judgment upon himself, be a terrible thing. The Lord is a jealous God. He would have the heart. Now it is a memorial, as I said. It is a symbol. And we don't, it's terrible, you know, when it's just added on to the end of a service. And, it, and if it's just so frequent that it is it's just not a special time. I think it can almost be done too frequently. It can almost be too familiar with it. I'm not saying often is, is, is wrong, but we, we have to get the balance right, don't we? 
Surely we want to honor the Lord. People have wrestled with this. How often? But I think one thing could be said. We know this in the Old Testament, certainly when it came to Samuel, and certainly when it came to the people, whenever they were to meet with the Lord, the Lord said, sanctify yourself. That is, prepare yourself. Prepare, we're told, to meet thy God. We don't come lightly. It is a memorial. It is a symbol, Father. Just as the Lord Jesus said, I am the door. We don't think of the Lord Jesus as a physical door with some hinges on and a lock. That's a symbol of what he what he was. He also said in that same chapter there in John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. He's both the door, he's the good shepherd, he is the way, the truth, the life. Those are mere symbols. And those symbols, the bread, pictures his body broken. We see it with our eyes. The blood shed for many, not for all, he said, and for the remission of sins. In the same way, he said, I am the vine. We don't think of him as some vine, as it were. But what did he say? And ye are the branches. We don't think of ourselves as branches in a physical sense, but attached to him. We get the imagery. We get the picture. Do we not? We don't ever imagine ourselves to be trees, but to be connected to Christ intimately. And we cannot survive without him. We have no life apart from the shedding of his blood. But you go back to look at verse 4. And all did drink, speaking of the Old Testament saints, the same spiritual drink. Yes, but they didn't discern, did they? What they were doing. What all this was meaning. They all drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. Yes, but it would be ridiculous to, to think that Christ was a physical rock. In the same way when we come to the table. We don't think of him materially, materially in the bread. But we, by faith, discern what he has done for us. It, you see, it is an exercise of faith, isn't it? As we come. All of that prefigured him. The rock. He is the rock of ages. He is the bread, the manna. He said, am I not the manna that has come down from heaven? The manna that fed the people for as long as they were in the wilderness. And the same for us in this world. We're in this world, my friend. And we feed upon Christ. And he will provide all of our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word, everything of Christ. Now, these are clear evidences here. They will see some evidences. Notice that these are mere symbols. Go back there to 1 Corinthians 11. 25. Notice 25b. He says, This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. That's a clear evidence that it's a symbol. He didn't say here, and you notice, he didn't say, As often as you eat my flesh. No. He said, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. He said, Not, and by the way, you know, in the Old Testament, if it was literal blood, that's forbidden. And if it was literal, literal flesh, that is cannibalism, which is forbidden. 
but rather we are to feed upon Christ and what he has done. This is why we totally reject the doctrine of transubstantiation. It's a blasphemy, friends. Utter blasphemy. And then it says, as often as you do this, ye do show the Lord's death. You're not causing Christ to die again. He's not offered up again. That would be blasphemous. The priest putting to death Christ again by the breaking of the bread and the pouring out, wouldn't it? I just want you to see, I know it, it might seem as if I'm laboring the point here, but it's worth thinking through all of these things again and again and again because we need to arm our minds, my friends. We are told that, and I do believe, even as our statement of faith puts it, that the Antichrist, who puts himself up in the house of God and puts himself over the word of God, will try to deceive the church with such damnable heresies. He died once. He was offered up once for sinners. We do not take the Pope's doctrine. Pope's always changing his doctrine. Changes the word. He is Antichrist. Furthermore, the Lord condemned, as I said, eating human flesh, drinking blood. We know all of this in the scriptures. It is the cup of blessing which was shed. Remember what he said in Matthew 26, 29. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. That's what he said. He didn't say, I will not hence drink forth of my blood. He didn't drink his actual blood the fruit of the vine, which was symbolic. So these things are vital. You see how it can become idolatry. And it had by just a few centuries after, and probably not even then. It was already idolatrous. Even now at Corinth, there were some not discerning, some just thinking that it was a means of blessing, not discerning the Lord's body. Not thinking of all that Christ has done. And this is where I want us to, to move next to more now of, I suppose, meditation in a positive way of what Christ has done for us. Think of it. Look, look at verse 16. And this is where we say it's a means of fellowship. Look at verse 16 with me. The cup of blessing which we bless or eulogize, which we, we glorify, we thank God and we bless him for, the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He says, notice, is it not the communion? Now the word there, communion, is the word koinonia, which is where we get the word fellowship from. That, that's the Greek word, by the way. The Greek word there is koinonia, which is fellowship. We have communion with him. We have close fellowship with him in a way that we could, could not have. In a sermon. Because we are thinking in a very intimate way of what he has done. And we're, we're one body as the Lord's people united together and bought by that same blood. The precious blood bought into one family, bought out of this world and into the body of Christ. 
Is it not the communion or the koinonia of the blood of Christ? Oh, friends, we have fellowship with the Father, says John, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. How? Why? By the blood of Christ. Doesn't Paul tell us this in Colossians 1.20? Having made peace through the blood of his cross by him. We could have no peace. God, we are told in Ephesians, was reconciling us, or rather Corinthians 2, 5, verse 18. God, who hath reconciled us to himself. We didn't reconcile ourselves to God. But we're told there, God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. I could never reconcile myself to God. You know, you hear people say, I'm going to put things right with God. I'm going to make my peace with God. A man can't do that. I know what some people mean. But the unbeliever doesn't really know that it could, could be nothing but the blood of Christ that could bring a man peace with God. Because a man is sinned against God and there's no hope unless Christ shed his blood for that man. Unless Christ died for him, there's no hope. Something else. When we come to the table and we, we look at the bread, we look at the wine, what, what are we reminded of? His incarnation. Aren't we? God was manifest in the flesh. And by the way, all the modern translations say he was manifest in the flesh. Not God. And by the way, the word, you look at the Greek I was looking at today, is theos. God. Theos was manifest in the flesh. So when we behold the bread and the wine, we say, God. God the Son came into this world. I tell you, the divinity of Christ has been under attack. Ever since the word of God has been published, my friends. As I said, all the modern translations, the NIV, ESV, all of these say, he was manifest. Why so important, isn't it, to have a faithful translation? And I was looking at the early church fathers, even before the modern text, the so-called modern text that was, has surfaced itself in the 1800s. God was manifest in the flesh. That's what they say. Is it little wonder the devil has tried to attack the church? I tell you, if God was not manifest in the flesh, there's no point coming to the table. We're told, are we not, Acts 20, verse 28, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. With his own blood. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. 1 John 5, 7. Something else it indicates, when we come to the table, a peculiar and special love. God says in his word, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. 
He could not help but draw his sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice, they come to me, and I give them eternal life. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. He said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. We're told we're not in Isaiah 53, 11, my righteous servant shall justify many, not everyone, for he shall bear their iniquities. He only bore the iniquities of them who he would justify and give a knowledge of himself. It's a peculiar love. It's a love to the love unlovely. While we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what we were. I give my life for the sheep. He says in Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Something else we're reminded. Not only is it a particular love for his sheep, but you have to think of it. What you're seeing is divine justice. The body broken. The blood shed. There was no other possible way that God could reconcile sinners to himself unless his justice was fully met, unless it was placated on Christ. That's why he cried to Telestai, it is finished. You see, God could not impugn his justice. And then we have peace, don't we, when we come and we see. Broken for me. Shed for me. Peace now. It's a lovely hymn by Anne Ross Cousins. O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Thy load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead. Didst bear all ill for me. It's a lovely hymn. We have it in our hymn book. And so while he was put to death by men, we have to remember he was forsaken of the Father on account of the sin of his people. Something else, when we see this, we have to be reminded that he was made to be sin, who knew no sin. It is, he did not become sinful, but he became the sin bearer of his people. He had no sin of his own, says the apostle. That's why he tells us, Paul tells us, that the grave could not hold him. Couldn't. Something else. Fifthly, when we come to the table, look at verse 16. The cup of the blessing which we bless or eulogize or give praise for, is it not the communion or the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion or fellowship of the body of Christ? Yet the body of Christ we thought of. The blood of Christ, but the body of Christ. But the body, as he will go on to tell us, is the church. Look at verse 17. For we being many are one bread and one body. The church is one body. Now when a husband and a wife get together, they are one flesh. We're told that in Ephesians 5, aren't we? And none shall separate. None shall separate. It's the same. We're joined to Christ forever. We have fellowship. and We are joined to each other. 
through Jesus Christ. But it's showing the covenant of grace. Adam was under a covenant of works. Adam broke that covenant. The covenant was, if he did this, it would mean life. We forfeited life in Adam. God made a covenant with his son before the world began to give his son a bride. And it was conditioned upon the son, not upon the bride. Upon what the son would do to get the bride. And he, he showed it to Adam and Eve there in the garden that the seed of the woman would bruise Satan's head. He would break that, up that alignment. And he showed it to Father Abraham. How? Abraham was caused to go into a deep sleep. And God passed in an oven through the midst of divided portions of animals. Abraham, as it were, was lights out. Asleep. And God was saying, Abraham, this is dependent on me, not you. Abraham, in blessing, I will bless. Abraham, it does not depend on you. Abraham failed miserably time and time again. He didn't wait for the seed. But God eventually brought the seed, and eventually the seed of the woman came, Jesus Christ, and gave his life as a ransom for many. It was a covenant made even before the world began. We're told that, are we not? Paul tells us that in Titus 1-2. In hope of eternal life, which God promised before the world began. Before the world was, who did he promise? There were no angels. There were no people. But there was God the Father. And there was God the Son. And the Father promised the Son that he would have a people. In hope of eternal life before the world began. And you notice something else? He speaks here of the one body. And he will later speak on about how every believer is baptized into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Verse 13, he says, For by one Spirit, that's the Spirit of Christ, are we all baptized into one body. And when we come around the table, we remind ourselves we are all part of the body of Christ. And we belong to each other. And we belong to Christ. Something else, lastly, it's a feast. Do you remember there was a brethren, a member of the church that was committing insidious, terrible, heinous sin in the church at Corinth? 1 Corinthians 5. And Paul says, you're defiling the feast. You can't have this man sit at the table. He says, therefore, purge therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. It's a feast because we celebrate what Christ has done for us. And it looks to, does it not, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I tell you, the only people that will be there are those that love Christ and are thankful. We love him because he loved us. And you can't sit at the table with known sin and go through the motions 
as if it was nothing that Christ died. He died that we might die to this world, that we might live to him, to the praise and honor of him, that we might be one body. This is why he says, you can't eat of this bread and be partakers of the sacrifices of those who eat of idolatrous things. Can't be. If a man receive these things by faith, you see, it'll change him. It'll change his thinking. This is why I say, you know, you, 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 let me just close with this. Acts 2. They that gladly received the word were baptized, we read, and were added to the church. And what do we read? And they break bread. The Lord's table, firstly, baptism, is the first thing. You're changed. Then you break bread. But you break bread with those that have been baptized, and it says they were added to the church that day. And they that were added broke bread. And it's a means of strengthening us, friends. You can't have people at the table who don't know the Lord. I would be causing men, women, people... To eat and drink damnation upon themselves if they partook in an unworthy manner. And I would have blood on my hands. Let us sanctify our hearts. Peter says, does he not sanctify your hearts to the Lord? Prepare when you come. Consider the Lord and all that he's done. And may it be a great means of strengthening us every time we come. And we pray we might see many more come to the table who are baptized and are accountable to a local church. He says, look, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? He says, look, you better take this seriously. God is a jealous God. And he will not give his glory to another. Take heed, lest we fall. Amen.